Hello, and welcome to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. Be sure to listen all the way through to the end of the episode for additional info on where to find more resources for past sermons, as well as how to watch us live each Sunday if you can't join us in person at our Columbus, Ohio location. Let's prepare to hear this week's sermon and listen for what God is saying to you and what he wants to do in your life. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see everyone's beautiful, smiley faces. Um, I'm going to be reading from Mark, and it's chapter 2, verse 18 through 22. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they are with him. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into the old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. Well, uh, I love food. That's my opening line. I love food. <laughs> and uh, some of you, you know, I, I, have, I have so many fun sermon intros because I grew up here. Like some of you knew me as a kid. I was a chubby kid uh, for a lot of my life. And, um, you know, still could be probably a little bit thinner. I remember a moment around third grade where my parents sat me down uh, and very gently we're trying to lay out some ground rules to how to, how to, how to rein in the big dog. Because <laughs> the part of growing up in a church is that there's unguarded food tables, particularly dessert tables. And so, uh, you know, it was, it was like the rule was, so on Wednesday night when we're eating dinner at church, let's stop at three cookies. Uh, which as a parent now, I'm like, three cookies? That's like, that's like my kid's monthly cookie quota. Uh, maybe I'm a little too uptight. But uh, uh, so love food, grew up lo- loving food. It was a big part of the way my family celebrated. You know, we were Baptists, so we didn't drink. So when we were going to celebrate, we, we shut down Donato's or whatever. And when we were sad, it was a big way that we comforted ourselves. You know, it also shut down Donato's. Um, you know, various diets and workout plans came in through through our house and um, a lot of my life, I would get really hangry, you know, hungry, angry, where you're hungry to the point where you just have this low grade, or in my case, high grade grumpiness underneath everything you do and say. And uh, food, food is complicated. And, but for most of my life, food uh, was in a separate category from God. Food was in this other category with exercise and stuff like that. And then, you know, and then I had church and scripture and prayer and mission trips and stuff over here. It was completely separate. My experience, my relationship with food was untouched by God. And uh, I go into that because today we see in the Holy Scriptures that our King is talking to us about fasting, the voluntary abstinence from food and I'm pretty excited to talk about this topic. I feel like it doesn't get a lot of airtime. And, and I'm excited because for me, in light of my little you know, bio that I just shared about food, uh, fasting has probably been 
the most fruitful, or at least top three most fruitful spiritual disciplines in my life. Uh, it could be overstating it, but I feel like my life started to make sense when I incorporated regular rhythms of fasting every week. It's a, it's a rhythm that I feel grateful for, not for the rhythm itself, but because it has opened up ways to connect with God that have been precious, uh, precious to me. Uh, but I realized that by saying that I like fasting, I maybe alienated myself from a lot of us in the room. Um, you know, we could be all over the map when it comes to food. You know, maybe you have a history of an eating disorder. Uh, so the relationship with food is very strained. Or maybe like me, you've, you've struggled with being overweight. And so your relationship to food is laced with shame and guilt and all kinds of confusing emotions. And I just want to say it's okay. It's okay. It's a, it's a safe place to be all over the map when it comes to food and abstaining from food. Uh, food is so central to our experience of being a human that it's so tied up in many of our deepest needs and emotions that it's so crucial that we bring it into our relationship with God. Uh, but it's, it's a bit nerve-wracking uh, to talk about in, in this kind of setting because I know we're all over the map. And because anytime I've learned this the hard way in church, anytime you talk about something really practical, like putting the fork down, uh, that's where all the drama starts. I've learned that it's easier sell. It's an easier pastoral move to say, you are a depraved sinner who needed God in the flesh to be executed on your behalf than it is to say, Consider not eating lunch in order to connect with God. Because uh, when we keep it in an idea, it's like, yep, yep, I'm a sinner. That's fine. Just like, let me live my life or whatever. But when it's like, oh, what I, what I do for breakfast, lunch, and dinner might have some kind of spiritual implications, you know, then we get into the nitty gritty of our lives. Sorry if I'm belaboring this. I just want to try to be sensitive. It's a new topic or whatever. There's lots of space for discovering and exploring. And I just want to invite you to be curious about how you respond. If you hate everything that I say this morning, that's okay. Just be curious enough to ask yourself why. Be curious to, to wonder what it is about food and not eating it that might bring such intense emotions. Particularly if there's memories from the past that God brings up or get brought up. I feel like I'm humming. Do you guys hear a hum? Okay, okay, got a thumbs up. Uh, you have memories from the past get brought up. You know, you don't have to figure them out or whatever. They're upsetting. Just hold, like, God, why am I thinking about this year in high school or this, or you, whatever? Just hold the, the memory before God. Ask what He wants to do with that. And the big idea. For us this morning, the main point is that feasting and fasting are central ways that we follow King Jesus as apprentices. It's kind of like our main theme, our main unifying idea around this whole study through the Gospel of Mark is how do we follow the King, follow King Jesus as his apprentices? What does it mean to see Jesus as the King with all authority in the cosmos, which is easy to agree with, and all authority in my life? in your life? What does it mean to follow him with that authority, who, the man who has that authority, the way we'd be an electrician's apprentice, daily going to work, practically learning things, being humble and learning from our king? And hopefully it's not distracting, but I wanted to include feasting and fasting because both of those are practices of the way of Jesus. And it's not an accident that last week we talked about what? 
Jesus feasting at Levi's house, who would have been probably one of the richest people in town. So I imagine the spread was pretty extravagant. We see Jesus feasting right uh, before this passage. And then today he's talking about fasting. And we're obviously not going to talk about feasting because it's not in the text, but that is on the map. Like we're not aesthetics where we never enjoy good food or drink or do anything fun or enjoy ourselves. But instead, we see that feasting and fasting are part of following Jesus. And there's theological reasons for that. So let's dive in. Verse 18, chapter, Mark chapter 2, verse 18, if you haven't turned there yet. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? So Jesus is asked a question, kind of an interruption. He wasn't setting about like with a list of things to teach. Let me hit fasting now. Instead, he's asked a question. And people are confused because they see Jesus presenting himself as a rabbi with disciples, so which would have been a very common thing. There were all kinds of traveling teachers with, with disciples, students back in his day. But the thing that was different was that there was no fasting going on. The Pharisees fasted, John the Baptist disciples fasted. It, fasting was a part and parcel of life, a normal practice. We know from uh, extra biblical sources that the Pharisees fasted on Mondays and Thursdays. And I, I don't know how the people knew this, but apparently John's disciples fasted to the point of it being a common, common knowledge. It's interesting, though, that in the, in the Torah, there was only one commanded fast. In all of the law, all 613 laws, there's one commanded fast, and that's the uh, Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. And so the twice-a-week rhythm of fasting was part of the Mishnah, the tradition of the Jewish people who were seeking to be holy and to, to create longing for the Messiah, to wait for the Messiah. And it's very interesting to kind of line up all of Jesus' teaching on fasting. We don't have time to do that. But one spot is we see Jesus instructing people about fasting and several other spiritual disciplines in the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew 6, he says this about fasting. When you fast, do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their full reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting but only to your father who is unseen and your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Try not to preach a sermon on this text, but I, I want to point out that Jesus is instructing people how to do a spiritual discipline in the right way so that you can get a reward. Jesus shamelessly appeals to our human desire for rewards. We do disciplines, we do spiritual practices to get something out of them. Uh, but the trouble we get in is when we look to the wrong reward. We try to get the wrong thing out of them. Uh, so the people were fasting to be impressive to those around them rather than to uh, receive the reward from God who sees them. His response to the question about fasting in our text explains this. Look at verse 19. Jesus answered, How can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. This response is amazing on multiple levels. First, Jesus asks, answers a question with a question, which is always the wise thing to do. Just, just take that for free. That's just wisdom. If someone asks you a question, figure out if you can answer with a question. 
And he, he brings up this topic of a wedding uh, because it would have been the most ridiculous time conceivable to fast. I mean, we like our weddings in our day and age, but they are nothing compared to a first century Jewish wedding, uh, which would have lasted seven days, seven days of fasting and drinking and dancing. And uh, maybe pro tip, you know, maybe they spent less on dresses and decorations and more on food. So if you're planning a wedding or whatever, like tuck that away and invite me to it. So I'll block the week off to come and eat with you. But Jesus, he's, he's almost being funny. It's like an absurd question. And you'd be like saying for us, do you fast on Thanksgiving day? Do you have a Super Bowl party with no appetizers? I mean, 90% of the people are at your Super Bowl party to eat, you know, and watch commercials. Uh, and he answers his own question. They cannot fast. When the bridegroom is there, they cannot fast. He's pointing out that in the reality of who Jesus knows himself to be, it would have been an absurdity for the disciples to fast. The, dis the fasting of the Pharisees and John's disciples was in order to wait for who? The Messiah. So to wait, they're trying to stir up longing for the fulfillment of God's long promised king. And Jesus is like, I am here. Jesus is saying something mind-blowing about who he understands himself to be. And he's saying that he is the bridegroom which in the context of the Old Testament and to first century Jews who would have been steeped and immersed in the Old Testament, that was how God the Father presents himself to Israel as a bridegroom. It's all over the place. Let me just read one verse, Isaiah 62, five. As a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Because Jesus is drawing the deep intimate connection that he is the bridegroom, the same that God is the bridegroom. He is of the same nature as God, the presence of God on earth. Verse 20 takes a weird turn. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. This is a jarring image because it's not like our weddings where, you know, the bride and groom get into a car that's been spray painted and they have cans rattling behind and everybody cheers. This is a, well, one that didn't happen because the party would have been where the bride and groom were gonna stay. And two, the language being taken away implies like a forth, forceful, unwilling taking away of the bridegroom. Already here in chapter two of, of the gospel, there's a foreshadowing of the cross this unnatural, tragic taking away of the bridegroom that ends the party. And he says, in those days, when the bridegroom is not physically present, then his disciples will fast. He's saying there's a time and place for fasting. We don't fast all the time, but we do fast as Jesus' apprentices. And Jesus is saying something very significant about fasting and spiritual disciplines in general. He's, he's saying that, these ancient core spiritual disciplines are intimately connected with his physical presence. Fasting would, is this, this religious tradition in the people of Israel for millennia. And he's saying, it all is about me. It's all about my presence. He is asserting himself as the one for whom all fasting and all spiritual practice point to and centered on. I mean, we can come, you can come back next week where we'll talk about Jesus being Lord of the what? The Sabbath. 
all of these ancient spiritual practices find their fulfillment in Jesus. In this metaphor that Jesus gives of the wedding and the feast and the bridegroom being present and the bridegroom being taken away, we see that in Jesus's presence, there is feasting. And in Jesus's absence, there is fasting. Both of those things are appropriate based on the presence of Jesus. The theological term or concept that would apply to this for us in our day and age, in our place in redemptive history is the already not yet. We can already experience in part the presence of Jesus because in Jesus's life, death and resurrection, we're forgiven, justified, redeemed, brought into God, adopted into God's family, and then given the, the gift of the Holy Spirit who dwells in our bodies. Try not to preach on that. So this means that we, ha we have the presence of God with us. And so we can feast and celebrate the first fruits of our salvation. But are we face to face with, with the person of Jesus? No. Do our hearts still wrestle with, with sin, with parts of God's rule that we struggle to say, okay, and, and obey? And so we can fast. We, we acknowledge that there's a gap that someday we will see Jesus face to face. We have the, the Holy Spirit, the first fruits, but are not yet in the presence of our King. And we will be someday. And fasting points us to that. The point of all the spiritual disciplines is that they are about, in the context here, feasting and fasting, it is about communion with Jesus or connection with Jesus, like a relational experience with Jesus Christ. That's the point. That's the, that's the, the, the means, or that's the end of the means. So when I met Camille, uh, before we were married, we lived uh, three hours apart. She was in Louisville and I was living here in Columbus. And so we started dating. And of course, we did everything we could to go visit each other. Um, some people can kind of like do the slow burn with long distance relationship, not us. And, uh, but when we were apart, what do we do? We were always on the phone, texting, FaceTime, all that stuff. And then we got engaged. And let me tell you, long distance engagement would not recommend. Zero out of five stars. Uh, but never was there a time in my life when I was so attuned to my phone. Like you've probably picked up, I, I'm kind of grumpy about smartphones, like I wish I didn't need, have to need one. But when it was like my means to connect with my beloved, I was all about it. My phone would beep and my breath would catch, was it her? Until I could move to Louisville and be with her. That was, the, that was the channel. There was a weekend where she was going to come and visit me in Columbus. And I was so excited that I moved my schedule around and I drove three-fourths of the way to Louisville to like meet her at a gas station and drive, drive back with her because I wanted extra time in the car with her. Now, imagine how ridiculous it would have been that after all that longing and texting and FaceTime and all that stuff, I'm finally in the car with Camille and I just keep texting and like looking at my phone. I mean, it's not even funny. It, it just is like, what? It, it doesn't make any sense. Like, why would I do that if she were in the car with me? And this is what Jesus is pointing out with fasting. When he is with his disciples, it's absurd to do this thing, to connect with him, to foster longing for him because he's right there. The kingdom of God is a feast with God at his table. But when he is absent, they will fast. And even now, if you know, I'm on a trip or whatever, I FaceTime Camille and text and you know, a lot more stuff. Uh, is on the phone. My relationship to my phone as a means to connecting with Camille 
is dependent on her presence, the relationship of her presence. And this passage, talking about fasting, is one of the clearest explanation of the points of all the spiritual disciplines, is that it's communion with Jesus. That's why I'm so passionate about the spiritual disciplines. How do we abide in Christ? How do we sow to the Spirit? How do we see the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? How do we experience God's love? Put ourselves into the flowing river of God's love for you, for you is, is, by, is through these practical things that we can do called spiritual disciplines. Now, because Jesus is saying that when he is not with his apprentices physically, they will fast, I want to unpack a little bit about the nuts and bolts of fasting. For most of my life as a Jesus follower, I, I had not heard much teaching on fasting and how to do it. And so I, I, might, I imagine there might be a few of us in the same boat. So I just want to spend a little bit doing like a fasting one-on-one -on -one for your consideration. The first thing I'll say about fasting is you don't have to do it, but you should think about it carefully. Consider carefully the teachings of scripture. Right here in our text, Jesus says, my disciples will fast when I'm taken away. And as we read in Matthew 6, he says, when you fast. Matthew 6 is the Sermon on the Mount, the most like comprehensive instruction to his followers. And he assumes that people will fast and he instructs them on how to do it. He seems to assume and take for granted that his followers will fast. But if we're looking at scripture, honestly, it's not, and thou shall fast on Mondays and Thursdays. There's no, you must fast or you should fast or anything like that. So I'm not saying you're in sin if you don't fast. Of course, there's seasons of life where you're pregnant or nursing or have a medical issue that would make fasting difficult. But I just invite you to consider it. And again, maybe all it's enough for you today, this week, to just be like, why does the thought of fasting make me so angry? <clears throat> just be curious about your emotional response. The second thing about, I'll say about fasting is that fasting is about not eating food. I would strongly encourage you, just in your own categories, in your, in your mind, to restrict fasting to the voluntary abstinence of food. There's a, another discipline called simplicity. It's got a lot of names, but I like the term simplicity, where it, which involves abstaining from a huge, almost limitless collection of activities and habits, uh, abstaining from all kinds of things like coffee, tea, social media, sugar, uh, alcohol, buying clothes, like almost anything. Uh, you could put in simplicity. And it's an amazing spiritual discipline. I've had incredible fruit from that discipline as well. We could spend a whole sermon series talking about simplicity and what the Holy Spirit can do in your life through strategic abstinence from things. But that's a different category from fasting. Fasting is most helpful when it's about not eating. And the reason why I think it's important to make that distinction is because there's nothing else in your life on the earth that is so central to your experience of a human being as food. It's not an accident that God made us before sin, before the fall with a need to eat. And praise his name, he put us in the garden, humanity in the garden surrounded by all this delicious food. And I don't think it's a hard sell. I think we could all agree that you just don't need coffee or social media or soda, you know, like you need food. D author David Mathis, who's also a pastor, has this quote 
uh, in his book, Habits of Grace. Only when we voluntarily embrace the pain of an empty stomach do we see how much we've allowed our belly to be our God, which he's referencing Paul's words in Philippians 3.19. In my experience as a pastor, the first church, last name, there we go, and we're back. The, the first church I pastored at was a classic Baptist church that didn't touch a drop of alcohol, uh, but in that relatively small Check, 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 check. We good? Should I wait? Okay, I'm going to keep talking. Uh, in that small church in this, you know, people who have great restraint when it came to alcohol, there were like four or five people who had bariatric surgery, which is where a doctor tells you, unless we like physically remove part of your stomach, you're going to die because of how much you're eating. Uh, and you know, they were doing better. I'm not saying anything bad about bariatric surgery, but you get to see how when you get, when you get flimsy with food and you can say, well, I'm, I'm not gonna do this thing, but don't touch my food or whatever, we can miss important parts of what God's doing in our souls. The third thing I'll say about fasting is that fasting is fundamentally a way to pray. Fasting is fundamentally a way to pray. John Piper says this in his book, Hunger for God. Fasting is the hungry handmaiden of prayer who both reveals and remedies. She reveals the measure of food's mastery over us. And she remedies by intensifying the earnestness of our prayer and saying with our whole body, what prayer says with the heart, I long to be satisfied in God alone. Fasting is a way to physically come home to our longings for satisfaction. And then with each hunger pain, offer them up to God, the only one who can truly satisfy. Fasting removes distractions to prayer that we didn't even know we had. When you start to fast, you realize how much mental space is taking up taken up by thoughts like, when am I going to eat next? What am I going to eat? Uh, how much should I eat? Oh, whoops, I ate too much in my last meal. Now all my thoughts are laced with guilt and shame or whatever. Not to mention practically just minutes of your day of cooking, packing, shopping, you know, preparing food to eat. And so during times of fasting, there's space opened up both in our minds and in our days to, to pray. And it's kind of inescapable when we let hunger pains become these little prayer prompts, letting our bodies remind us that only God can satisfy, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes out of the mouth of God. And so, sometimes you're fasting and you're so, uh, so hungry that all you can do is just whisper all day long, satisfy me, oh God, please satisfy me, have mercy on me, satisfy me. And that is a beautiful prayer to rehearse. Fourth thing I'll say about fasting is that fasting is a key, key way to fight sin. One of the most powerful ways to fight sin, particularly sins of engagement. You know, there's sins of omission, commission. You know, if you like engage in a sin and can't stop fasting is a, is a really powerful way to do, do that. Look with me at Paul's words in Galatians 6. He says, whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap dis destruction. Whoever sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Fasting is one practical way uh, to, to sow to the spirit. This is, this is an aspect of fasting that has been so freeing and powerful in my life. 
Uh, I'm a pretty visceral person with strong bodily appetites. Uh, but for most of my life, the way I would try to fight those appetites or wrangle that sin was with my brain. Trying to, like, I'm going to think the right thoughts. I'm going to think enough theology or think deeply enough about how Jesus died for my sins to where I no longer struggle with. But the sin was in my body. It wasn't in my brain. And so when I incorporated fasting into my life and began to involve my body uh, in my walk with the Holy Spirit, so much changed. The, the intensity of those bodily appetites uh, that I'd struggle with for most of my life were infinitely easier to navigate. It's not a silver bullet. I'm saying it, it helps. If you, a, a college uh, minister at my college would tell the guys before Christmas break, if you overeat, you're probably going to look at porn. If you indulge one appetite, it's going to be so much easier to indulge another appetite. Like That's not necessarily true, but it's a good truism, a good rule of thumb. So if you struggle with any kind of overindulgence, eating too much, pornography, romance novels, binging TV, fasting could be an incredibly powerful tool to take up in your, in your pursuit, not just of kicking the habit of sin, but making yourself available to the true satisfaction, the satisfaction that you're really looking for in that sin that only comes from God. And if that's, that's you, Today, I would love to meet with you uh, and talk about how we, how we could get, get serious about killing besetting sins that are in your life and, and how fasting might be able to help. So those are a few things to consider when it comes to fasting. And the good news with fasting, uh, this is a disclaimer for all spiritual disciplines, is that the results are not your job. The results are not up to you. You don't have to go into fasting with this pressure to make some hot new take on God or the gospel or something. You, we do spiritual, any spiritual discipline. It's the truth for reading scripture. You come to, your job is to put yourself before the word, see what the Holy Spirit does. In fasting, your job is to stop eating and then see what the Holy Spirit does. Fasting, like all spiritual disciplines, are just giving the Holy Spirit space to work in us, like a sailboat. We can't make the wind blow, but we can put the sails up and get the boat in the water and make sure there's no leaks so that when the wind does blow, we go where we want to go. So you might try fasting and have tongues of fire resting on your head and have clear insights into every question you've ever had about life. Or you might fast and just be kind of grumpy and hungry, and then the fast is over and you eat again. And that's it, you know. Uh, but like reading our Bibles or serving in church or anything else, we, we show up faithfully, prayerfully, and we, we stick to the rhythm and see what that activity in the power of the Holy Spirit will do to change us, to, to move us towards the completion of the work that Jesus has begun. So the invitation this week is to you could probably guess, try fasting. Uh, I have three, three levels of fasting attempts for you to consider. The first one is entry level. If this is brand new to you, you know, like you haven't even like gone between breakfast and lunch without a snack, you know, it's like I've never considered not eating all throughout the day. And I'd encourage you to just try fasting during lunch one day this week. Eat breakfast and then wait until dinner to eat again. Uh, and during the time that you'd normally be cooking food or eating your sack lunch or whatever, uh, maybe just drink some water or some, some tea and read Psalm 63. If you're looking for, you have a different one, you can read that. But I love Psalm 63. It's got my life verse. You satisfy me with fat and rich food. 
Uh, it's a beautiful poem about the relationship with God. And then just journal. You know, this could take 15 minutes of in the middle of your day that you would have been eating lunch and journal about what you're experiencing and how you're feeling. The mid-level fa fasting practice would be to try to do a 24-hour fast, uh, which sounds like a huge jump from skipping lunch, but it's not. Because uh, if you eat dinner, say, like on a Monday night, and then you just skip breakfast and lunch, so it's just one more meal and eat dinner on Tuesday night, that's roughly 24 hours. Uh, and the same thing, use the time cooking, packing a lunch, eating to be still and quiet with God. Uh, read a psalm or part of the Gospels and journal out what you're feeling. Maybe you're just grumpy and hungry. I mean, you just tell that to God. That's a beautiful place to be uh, a child of God. Just be like, I'm hungry and I need you to comfort me. And or I've had times of fasting where I felt like I could barely form words to pray anymore. So I was just kind of like moaning, <laughs> just kind of like, it's because I wasn't fasting, right? That's another story. But I was just was like, my brain was mush. And so I was just before God uh, without all my fancy words uh, being in his presence. Reach level would be to do a 48-hour fast, which would be like eating dinner on Monday night and then waiting until Wednesday evening to eat dinner. Uh, and it's a reach level. I'm not saying you got to do any of this. This is just like to put it out there for your consideration or to work up to uh, because it, it's so powerful because even aside from our body's needs, uh, psychologically, that end of the day meal is huge. Like we, we don't, you don't understand how big like dinner is the end of the day refuge and comfort. Our only hope in life and death is that we'll get dinner after whatever happens at work. Uh, it gets us cozy for bed. And in my experience, some really powerful stuff comes up when we abstain from dinner and show up to God. And, you know, it doesn't mean you don't sit with people. Maybe you sit with your family and explain to your kids that you're fasting because you believe God's better than food. And just let that go into their little brains and see what, see what happens with it. And the last practical thing I'll say about fasting is that breaking the fast is every bit as holy as the, the time without food. Feasting and fasting is the, is the, the way of Jesus. And when, when I come to food again after a fast, the simplest meals just feel like extravagance. The, the, the whole body gratitude that I feel for food after fasting uh, and the deep sense that God is meeting my body need, bodily needs uh, is so, so enriched, so heightened. So there you go. That's a little fasting 101. Take it or leave it. If you try it, I'd love to hear how it goes. You can't mess it up. You can't mess it up. Just give it a shot. Try some length of time without eating and see what God does. Look where Jesus goes next. Verse 21. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. So we talk about fasting. Jesus is shifting to talking about more than fasting with these verses. But as we, the launch point is fasting. And if it seems like we're talking about something really new and uncomfortable, then consider why Jesus would tell these two little parables, these little mini stories. What, consider what he's saying. One commentator summarized it like this. This shows Jesus's radical message of the kingdom of God and its incompatibility with existing forms of religion and society. Both parables speak 
not only of incompatibility, but of the destructive results of attempting a compromise with the old. In the context of food and fasting, we all bring a relationship to food that was formed before we started following Jesus. Our relationship to food that we bring into our relationship with Jesus was formed before we started following Jesus. And, and it's true of not just food, but our relationship to money or to sex or to work or any, entertainment, anything. Those relationships are formed and then we need to bring those things into our relationship with God. And Jesus is saying, mixing the new, the new way of relating to life and religion and everything with the old will take a little minor rip in a garment into a gaping hole. And the, and the wine-making process of the day, fermentation would have started in a big vat, and then they put it into a fresh leather wineskin to continue fermenting, which meant it was bubbling and producing, uh, producing gas. And so if you put lively, bubbly new wine into brittle old wineskins, it would blow up. This is very vivid imagery. This is like not a quaint little parable of Jesus. He's making it very clear that you can't just patch a little Jesus, a little kingdom of a God uh, onto the raggedy old cloak of your life. That you can't pour fresh, still fermenting wineskin on the used up brittle wineskin of your old way of life because it will destroy it. Jesus says, I am doing a new thing. Following Jesus as the king requires us to, to put everything before him and say, you're the king, what do you have to say with it? Being willing to let go of everything. The new wine of the kingdom of God is for people who like new wineskins are soft and pliable, willing to be stretched and made uncomfortable by something that's alive, something that's active and something that will create something delicious. It's not random, and it's not random theologically that Jesus would use garments and wine for this, these, these two little mini parables. Both of these things point us to the foundation of our apprenticeship to Jesus, foundation of the kingdom of God, which is his atoning work on the cross. Isaiah 61.10 says this, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall exult in my God, for he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness. And then in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-five, Paul, in his instructions about the Lord's Supper, says this to the church in Corinth. In the same way, Jesus took the cup of wine after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The new garments, the new wine are the salvation of God to everyone who comes to Jesus as their king in repentance. The, the wine of the new covenant is, the, is the, the covenant that unites us in a relationship, in communion with God so that we don't fast or do any spiritual discipline just for its own sake, but we do it so that we can know God in the new covenant where our standing with God is because of Jesus's finished work. This brings us to uh, celebrating communion, the Lord's Supper here today. So beautiful to end a teaching on fasting with all of us eating something. I think that is exactly what we're going for. Uh, the presence of Jesus we, uh, is a celebration. And we say we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper each month uh, with 
with communion. This month, we're celebrating it by uh, coming up out of our seats uh, down these two side aisles uh, to receive the cracker and juice. We're embodying that we are people who follow Jesus, who get up and follow Jesus, and that we're people who hunger and thirst for Jesus. And the, the cracker and the juice are, are it's a little symbol where we remember his death until he comes, and we remember that someday all of us will feast in Jesus' presence face to face. We're eating and drinking to remember Jesus's death until he comes again, remembering that our deepest need of being reconciled to God has already been objectively accomplished in the cross and that we now can know the satisfier of our souls. Let me pray. Oh, Father, I praise you for being the God who satisfies us as with fat and rich food, that you are a God who reveals yourself as a satisfier, you don't want us to just live in a state of denying our needs. You, instead, you want us to drink deeply of how you and you alone can meet our needs. Father, would you forgive us for ways we go to things other than you to meet our needs, ways that we deny that you are the only true satisfaction for our souls and all the ways that we hurt ourselves and hurt others as we try to satisfy our need for comfort and approval and significance uh, apart from you. As we enter this time of communion together as a church family, as we are physically moving our bodies to come forward and receive this ordinance that our King left us with, Father, would this be a time of worship, of gratitude? Would we taste the cracker and drink the juice with deep gratitude that in Jesus you have met all of our needs? In his name, amen. Thank you for tuning in to the Carl Road Baptist Church podcast. We hope you found something that can be applied to your life today and into the future. You can always watch our past services or see them live on YouTube, Facebook, and our website at www.carlroadbaptist.org. That's Carl with a K-A-R-L, roadbaptist.org. If you search YouTube or Facebook, look for Call Road Baptist Church, and don't forget to subscribe or follow us if you are watching via a service that allows that so you can stay up to date and notified when another episode is ready for you to watch or listen to. Thanks again for sharing your time with us and putting in the effort to maintain your relationship with God. Have a fantastic week, and we look forward to growing alongside you in the future with the next episode of the KRBC Podcast.